Digitally native Gen Z is constantly skeptical of brands trying to grab their attention. They know the tricks, they've been around the block. YouTube, Snapchat, TikTok, and Instagram are where they congregate and consume content for hours on end every day. A brand's call to action cannot be a tired gimmick that's been seen a million times before. Companies trying to connect with this generation need to take a unique approach. To better break down the ways to truly connect with Gen Z, I'm so happy to share this conversation with Shane Austry. Shane's impressive background includes ad tech machine learning at companies like Reddit, as well as consulting for Fortune 500 companies trying to better understand Gen Z and influencer marketing. In this episode, we discuss the unique sensibilities of Gen Z, long-form versus short-form content, the value to micro-influencers, and more. Enjoy! Well, fantastic. I'm, I'm so happy to have here Shane Ostry. Um, and I want to go into my little intro of how I first uh, became aware of Shane. I was in a clubhouse, uh, something marketing related, and somebody intros Shane going, hey, uh, and now, you know, to, to really go into Gen Z, uh, I'm going to let Shane speak. And I've become so accustomed to people on LinkedIn saying, hey, I know Gen Z. And then they just make a video saying, Gen Z likes dope things. And it's like, okay, that doesn't do too much. And then Shane, you start talking and you go, well, when brands are evaluating their LTV and my my ears immediately go like, oh my God, wait a second. This guy really knows what he's talking about. And uh, of course, subsequently went on a binge of a lot of your content. But uh, Shane, that's my little intro to you. But I guess beyond that, welcome. And uh, I guess if you want to give a little background on yourself. Sure. Name Shane Ustry, originally from the Virgin Islands. Currently, I am a machine learning consultant and a real estate investor. I've been in software engineering for several years, worked at companies like Facebook, Reddit, Tapjoy, and Yelp, several other companies. And I'm just glad to be here. Fantastic, man. Um, well, great. I, you know, you named a lot. You said Reddit. You said some social media platforms. Um, I guess what has it been like for you working on the development side? And now, obviously, you also do a lot in some of that marketing strategy. Um, how has that background really helped you approach this space in the new year? Well, for me, even when I was on the engineering side of these companies. I was actually very entwined with the marketing departments because primarily I was actually on the ads department. So when I worked for Yelp, I was on the ads team. When I worked for Reddit, I was on the ads team. And the key thing is, even as a developer on these teams, as a machine learning engineer, you actually have to understand both the advertiser, the user, and then the marketing team's goals. So as I've been in these different roles, it actually have helped my growth because I've been in marketing since high school, I started my first online brand during my senior year. And I've always been a very entwined with the marketing world, learned about influencing for a while. 
And as the year started with COVID, I seen that there's been a lot of opportunities for new brands to actually get deeper with their audience through influencer marketing. Fantastic. Um, and I know that's kind of what uh, had us cross paths here. Um, and we have to go into influencer marketing. So I, I'm curious to get your perspective, both as someone who's just, hey, deeply knowledgeable in TikTok, Gen Z, but also your background as somebody who really uh, understands the history to these platforms and how maybe different demographics really love these. So um, I could go on and on about where I see the value to influencer marketing, but I guess what would your, uh, say you're talking to someone who uh, runs their little mom and shop pop, uh, maybe that actually is not the best example, but maybe some company who for some reason they're living under a rock, they don't understand that influencer marketing is a really smart route to go down. What would you say of, hey, listen, this is why it's something in 2021 you really need to value? Well, the thing is, as these platforms, I won't name any names, but as these platforms actually become more expensive, let's say Facebook, Twitter, all these other platforms that you could traditionally advertise on, Google Ads, for example, as they become more expensive and competitive, one has to be actually considerate of, hey, what are the new ways, the new cost-efficient ways of targeting my audience? And something that's been here for a while is influencer marketing, even though only recently has been gaining steam with the big players in the marketing realm, influencer marketing has a unique capability to connect with your audience on a deeper level. Rather than seeing an ad, seeing them in someone they actually trust, endorse your product, reaches them on a new level. And then we could also get into like, hey, micro versus macro influencers and why that picking the specific route you go down is important. That's another thing about it. But I'll let you continue. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's a really good point. The micro versus macro influencer, it's uh, it's hard to know. But, um, you know, what I love about what you're saying, and I think especially going back to that initial clubhouse where you talked about LTV, is really looking at this from a standpoint of, you know, hey, this is beyond, hey, this is going to be some big branding play. This is also, hey, literally, if you look at what, uh, you know, your your CPM is or what you're paying, you can get a, a much greater return through this avenue. Um, so I guess I'd love for you to speak a little bit more about that approach, because I know uh, in your Silicon Valley consulting and maybe just in your conversation with other folks in the space, that has to come up of, you know, this isn't only, hey, this is going to be the most exciting campaign in the world. This is also actually going to be really efficient with uh, exactly what you're really looking to gain from a marketing campaign. Well, yes, because the thing is, traditionally early on, let's say pre-2016, with influencer marketing, it was seen as just a way of like doing brand awareness. Right. But now as we have more tracking tools, even I'm working in that space as well of like tracking the ROI of influencer marketing, as those tools become more abundant and more accurate, it actually allows for advertisers to see, hey, we could do this on a performance marketing level rather than just a brand awareness model. And with that, it allows you to say, hey, let's allocate a certain amount of budget because we can actually track and see the ROI of influencer marketing. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, and it's interesting that that is where this industry seems to be headed. Um, and I know for you now, you know, we're, we're talking about convertibility. And um, I'd say that your bread and butter 
is Gen Z. Is that what you would think if, if you were to go to, hey, if you force me, gun against my head, to say where my expertise in in a demographic, would, would you say it's Gen Z? Yes, I definitely, I'll definitely agree with that. <laughs> okay, I'm glad. I know that was a really drastic way to put it, but um, yes, it seems like you're m far more knowledgeable than most uh, about Gen Z. And it is interesting when you think about, you know, Gen Z being a generation that really grew up with these platforms. I, I listened to the uh, Mr. Beast Clubhouse the other day, and it's so funny as he talks about like, yeah, I, I never watched TV as a kid. I don't, you know, I don't, I, it was only YouTube. I don't understand long form, uh, you know, serialized, uh, all this other stuff. So um, I guess on that, Gen Z's sensibilities, how they've been raised, when now you need to target them for influencer marketing, what are some of the things that really need to be accounted for? And I guess, what do you often see overlooked? Well, I have pretty interesting responses to that. When, as something that's pretty known right now, maybe not known to everyone, because there are like the chasm of the de demographic in the marketing world, but something that like is pretty known, at least in my circle, is that they do prefer short-term content most in most cases, because if you get to the point and show them the appeal to it, then they'll, they'll be worthy of looking at the rest of your content. But if your content isn't initially good in the initial couple of seconds, it could actually push them away and prevent them from seeing the true value of your content. Now, something that's also overlooked is that I do believe after doing a bit more research that long-form content can survive but only on certain terms so long-term content in the traditional sense of cable tv in that format it's you would say it's dead <laughs> but in the form of like live stream content to the user that's still personalized to their interest let's say a streaming platform if it would have like a linear format of like hey one show after the next but it was personalized to their interest may actually have like an actual hold even on Gen Zs who are more prone to short form content. Interesting. So, so what you're saying is uh, when it comes to where Gen Z is just comfortable and hey, listen, I, I'm more open to new forms of content, it's going to be on short form. But if you're to go to long form, it's going to have to be hyper targeted to the specific individual's sensibilities. Exactly. That's so interesting. Um, well, I guess on that, do you see that as, you know, I know there's a lot of TikTokers that then go to YouTube and they go, okay, YouTube is where I'm gonna be doing this. And, you know, I know there are TikTok creators who faced a significant return with some campaigns just on TikTok. But then when they go over to YouTube, they might see completely different results for the better or for the worse. Um, I guess, how does that need to be accounted for? If if you're a creator and you're looking to convert with any campaign you're going to do, whether it's merchandise or whether it's a brand wanting you to plug their service or product, how is that going to be factored in for, I have my short form audience or my long form audience? Do you see one approach being a lot better when it comes to making a message resonate with an audience? Well, it depends on like, actually the platform, because the thing is, someone as an entirety of a person isn't just short from content. 
we didn't 100% lose the capability to absorb long form content. One, it depends on the content, <laughs> but two, it also depends on the platform. So on TikTok, if you're used to short form content while you're scrolling through TikTok, your behavior is to only pay attention to a video for a few seconds before you swipe up. But with YouTube, you may be adjusted to maybe like, hey, it could go on for a little bit longer, not necessarily 30 minutes, but longer than a TikTok video. So the behavior that the person's are used to and has been trained to on a platform also has to be taken into account when you're thinking of a strategy of how to place an ad or how to actually sponsor a brand. Interesting. And then I guess on that, of course, there are so many different approaches. You know, um, I, as every day goes on, I think you're seeing more, uh, maybe YouTube has sort of found it steady and, uh, you know, it's predictable with this is how a sponsor is going to be integrated by a brand. But, um, with TikTok, it, you know, it is, it is the wild west still. And every single new day, it seems like brands are finding more and more creative ways to integrate. So, um, I, I guess on two fronts, and I really want you to uh, elaborate as much as you can on this because uh, this is where I'm so curious to hear your thoughts. But if it's a branding play versus if it's a direct response campaign, you know, we want to see the conversions. For those two different approaches from a brand, um, what what should the approach be on a platform like TikTok? Because, you know, I think the other thing we have to count for is the longer the content, of course, just the easier it is to integrate a sponsor. You know, when it's shorter, and I know this is something you've talked about, it really needs to be done correctly. Well, the thing is, you we have to look back at history and see some of the changes in the influencer marketing world. If you look back and see that when macro influencers were actually generating a lot of sales from their promotions, and then look at how now they actually don't actually generate so many sales like they used to. The efficiency of their model has gone down. You have to realize the reason why it's gone down is because consumers have gotten smarter. Gen Z have gotten smarter in the sense that we can see the inauthenticity of these different macro influencers. A large artist saying, hey, check out this product doesn't isn't really the same as someone who is able to cleverly interweave it into their content. So let's say it's a bubbles bath company and they would like to get more young people into their product. A clever way of doing it, let's say on TikTok, would be to, hey, maybe pouring it, the TikToker does some kind of skit where they pour it in and make the bubbles hilarious in some way or form. That would actually be able to integrate better with the audience and who say like, okay, I kind of wonder how do I actually achieve those same results as that TikToker who made that video? That's something that has to be considered. And if you just want brand awareness, then they could do it in any generic type of way and then maybe show the bottle somewhere in it, like product placement. But if you would like to see the ROI of it, then you have to push the product more to the forefront, but not in a deliberate, obvious way. You do it in a way such as if only your product could make purple bubbles, then you have to show it in that video because that will actually bring attention to, hey, I can't do this with any other product. I need that specific product. And then maybe someone to ask in the comment section and then 
either the person responds or somebody else responds, but the product gets known because you have to show the uniqueness of your product for them to actually ask what specific company made this product. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, and you know, this goes to another thing you've talked about, which is uh, the authenticity that needs to be demonstrated in these. And, you know, it is funny. You look at any study, and I swear the common thread, whether it's, hey, uh, what does Gen Z care about for brands in social causes, in sponsorships, whatever it is, it is all about authenticity. It really is remarkable. And, of course, something like a sponsorship where anybody watching knows, because, of course, there's laws, you have to uh, divulge that it's a sponsor, you know, it, that immediately does come in conflict where it's like, wait a second, is this inauthentic? So you've talked about this in the past and I, and I love hearing your thoughts here, but talk about that art, I guess. Uh, how, do, how do you get it where for a generation that is so skeptical and so looking to find the inauthenticity, how can you make these sponsorships on a platform like TikTok really truthful and honest to the audience? Well, the thing is, if you hide something and people find out about it, then it backfires. But you could directly tell someone about it, your intentions of, let's say, hey, I'm selling this product, but still make the video valuable enough to make the person want to buy it. It actually becomes very simple for the person to then buy it because there's nothing for them to find. They didn't find any hidden agenda. They knew exactly why you did it, but it still brought value and it still made them want to actually get it. It becomes kind of simple at that point, honestly. Interesting. So it, it really is just about being completely transparent. But um, I guess in your mind, without naming any companies, have you seen some brands or some companies try to do this on TikTok in a way that is just a colossal disaster? <laughs> yeah, um, I have. I probably won't name the companies. Um, <laughs> Let's not. But yeah, it's just... They try to advertise on TikTok through very inauthentic methods, and they try to interweave the products, but the way that they do it doesn't feel actually like they would like to get the customers to love their brand, so they see the uniqueness of their brand. Instead, it seems like a way, like some kind of gimmick that makes kind of pushes you away at the end. That's interesting. It's it's almost like, hey, you know, we were told by uh, the 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 kid right out of college um, that, hey, we need to do something on TikTok. So we're just doing something and not really applying a, a deeper strategy to delivering content on this platform. I guess. Yeah. To give you one example, one generic example that I did see, but by multiple companies, so it can't actually be spotted is that. This company wanted, let's say, a financial tracking app to become popular among the younger generation. So what they did is they created this very gimmicky, cheesy video where someone was going through the financial tracking app and another friend came into the room and said, hey, what app are you using? And with some kind of fake, cheesy excitement, they said, oh, yeah, I'm using this financial tracking app. It's literally the coolest thing around. And it's just kind of cringy at that moment where it's like, okay, that that doesn't feel natural. You wouldn't say that about a financial tracking app. That wouldn't be the value proposition you tell you to your friend. That's a good example of not interweaving your content well instead of just trying to 
force forcibly intertwined into some content. Right. And and conversely, say if you were leading the strategy on a campaign like that, um, and it's hard, obviously, I haven't given you any time to prepare here. So this I know this will be totally just off the dome, but how would you want to uh, implement a campaign on TikTok, say even for a, a very similar product to what you've just discussed? I mean, if it was a financial literacy app, something that could be considered is You'd want, there are TikTokers who have an audience and the audience is on TikTok for reasons other than just dance videos, <laughs> as everyone thinks. So there are professional TikToks who like have a following who, even though they might be younger, they do care about like financial literacy. Even if it's just for simple things like, hey, saving up for college or just saving up so you can go on dates or saving up just to pay for a gas bill, things like that. You could target those TikTokers and get them to speak on it. And instead of doing some cheesy video saying like, hey, this is some cool app, which is wouldn't be used with that category of app, you might just say, hey, it helped me like just get gas and like get your realistic situation of like, hey, a 16 year old needed money for gas. And it's like, oh, yeah, it saved me a penny per day. And now I have like an extra $20 at the end of the month just to pay for some gas or like just go to movies or something, <laughs> something yeah. that feels a lot more real and relatable to a someone of that generation. Completely. And it, it seems like what you're speaking to as well is, hey, if you're going to run a campaign with an influencer, it's about finding the right influencer. It's not just don't just look at the number of followers. It's about finding the people who, who have the relevant message. Um, and I guess on that, can you talk about the importance there of what you've seen with TikTok campaigns of finding the right influencer for the campaign rather than just casting a, a super wide net and going, this person has the biggest reach, therefore we'll allocate budget to them? Well, that's the reason why macro influencers aren't as effective anymore because their audience is from a wide array of different interests. Like for a large celebrity, she may have an audience who likes her, everyone who follows her generally likes her music, but maybe some of them only follow her for music. Only a small portion of them actually care about financial literacy in that previous example. And you, if you go to her, you wouldn't have that same type of efficiency because you think like, hey, I could just, maybe everyone's into financial literacy, but that's not generally the case. Yes, everyone can use your app, but you kind of want to go after the users who would truly use your app, your power users in most cases. And you should look for micro influencers who fit your niche, who already talk about the topics that your audience will care about. So if they have never talked about financial literacy in the past, it's obvious to the audience as a product placement ad because they never talked about it in the past. They never showed any interest in wanting to do that area. And all of a sudden they're doing it. So you would want to look for someone who has talked about stocks before, have talked about real estate before, who have done various financial tips videos if you're on TikTok. And that, that would feel more natural to their audience and then more a larger percentage of their audience would actually convert. So it gives you a higher efficiency per dollar. Interesting. Yeah. No, it it you know, it's funny. Obviously to someone like you or myself, it's like this is how you need to approach it. But regardless of the platform, it could be uh, TikTok, it could be YouTube, hell, it could even be Facebook. It is so interesting how you do see brands just not seem to comprehend this concept. But um, I, want, I want to get your thoughts as well, Shant, because 
Here is a, a, a perspective I've had uh, about the micro versus macro influencer thing. Um, and I'm really curious to see if you disagree um, or where we agree. You know, if there's any daylight between us, I, I really want to explore it. That, you know, I, I have seen a lot of criticism against just the macro influencer. And my mentality is, yeah, for Kim Kardashian, I agree. If it's just some, you know, you are just blinded by the fact that she has such a huge reach. You're not thinking about how relevant, say, a product will be. But conversely, if you go too micro, I, I feel like there is a metric that is really hard to just calibrate, but it needs to really be thought of is, okay, just how engaged is this audience? And I think if you go too macro, you're not going to have the most engaged audience. But if you go too micro, it's going to be the same deal where, you know, it's not going to be the most engaged. I look up to this person when they don't maybe have that relationship with their audience because they're not that huge. It really is just like, all right, I'm a, I have this one creator I enjoy watching. They don't really, you know, they're not known. I wonder if the influence quote unquote is there. So uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that of uh, the, the TLDR, I guess, to my perspective is that too micro and too macro, it ultimately is going to be the same issue with the levels of engagement from the audience. Well, everything is a spectrum where you could go too much on either side. And with micro influencers, you do have to consider the resources within your company or within your team where you each team member only has so much time to allocate to managing influencers because working with influencers do take up time on the company part. Like, hey, what content do you want us to post? When do you want to post this? Having a team member go back and look and make sure it was posted correctly. It does take time and resources. So you do have to consider the amount of resources your company has as far as time goes. And then you will take that into consideration with how many micro-influencers you want to work with. How big do you want, how big or small do you want them to be? If your company has a lot of actual employees with a lot of time, you can have a bunch of many influencers, though you don't want to go too small because maybe, yeah, they have a high conversion rate, but it's only one person conversion converting. You'd want someone who still has like a has a high enough number of relevant followers. However, you can actually advertise with them multiple times to actually capture the whole audience. You wouldn't want someone who's so small that you might be able to capture the entire audience just with one ad, because traditionally how it's supposed to be done is you're supposed to build your connection between company and influencer. When someone thinks of this influencer, they think of your company. And whenever you think they think of your company, you think of the influencers who support it. So you're not just going to do one ad with a micro-influencer, you're going to do several. And if you already captured the audience, it doesn't fully make sense to continue running ads with them. You should like have influencer who has like maybe 2,000, 2,000 up to like maybe 100,000. And within that range, you should be able to do 10 ads with them at least. And from that point, you can capture the entire audience. But if you capture the entire audience just with one ad, then you may have to consider, hey, maybe their audience is too small for our company size at least. It depends on the company size. Yeah, no, 100% where, you know, maybe if it's if it's too small or far too big, it's going to have equally low conversion rates 
um, as opposed to finding that sweet middle ground. Um, so a hundred percent. And, and I'm wondering if we can go even back to just marketing more generally, uh, cause I know you have a lot of expertise and I, I don't want us to get too deep just on influencers. Um, so I'm wondering just as a, a starting point, um, say for marketing and advertising across social media platforms, um, you obviously having worked deep in the development side, you have expertise that I don't have. You know, I look at what the uh, the polished model is and try to analyze from there, whereas you are able to get really granular. So I'm wondering from your experience on that development side, what are some of the areas or some of the things that you think uh, most marketers or most advertisers are not totally aware of that you've become aware of uh, thanks to your development background? Well, one thing... One tip I could say is that a lot of times you may start an ad on certain social network platforms that use machine learning and you may get poor performance. But when you redo that same ad and the same platform, you might get better performance. And that may seem weird, but the thing that someone who studies machine learning knows is that a lot of times when you do advertising on these platforms, the initial set of users and the actions they take drastically affect the further results of your campaign. If the initial set of users that they choose out of a pool of users is actually your target demographic and your target demographic into actually does a lot of actions, let's say liking, posting, resharing about your ad, it will cause this platform to continue wanting to target users like that. However, if it shows your ad to the part of your potential audience that doesn't really care, after a while, it's going to stop showing your ad as often to everyone in there due to the simple fact it lost confidence in your ad as it starts to think that, hey, maybe your ad is just a bad ad and it doesn't want to ruin the user experience. But however, if off the first go, if people's interacting with your ad, maybe because of the time of day, maybe it's just because of how they feel at that time of day, if they actually get a lot of interactions within a certain amount of time, that actually encourages the model to want to show it to more people. Even if they don't later on engage for a certain period of time, it will still try because it saw that that early audience did care about it. That's so interesting. So I... A part of what you're saying, and I think this can, God, so apply to thinking about all the e-commerce platforms that are utilizing Facebook or Pinterest, you know, say they run an initial ad and then they see, all right, it's really not resonating with this demographic. Uh, we tested it with a lot. It's not working. And then from there they go, all right, let's dismiss that demographic. They may be way overly dismissive because they might not be accounting for the fact that hey, maybe it was just a bad ad. Maybe it was uh, all these other things. Is is that sort of what you're getting at with where you see uh, kind of a misguided approach to targeting? Yes, because we do have to consider that there are things that is not being shown to the marketer in order to simplify the, the experience. Because as we all know, sometimes these advertising platforms would be a little bit over too much information, overwhelming in a sense. And they do try to simplify some of the information they give you. But there's other things behind the scenes that has to be that could affect how your ad is doing, and that's just things you have to consider. So yes, they are being over dismissive. 
yes, they should also try to add again, maybe at a different time, relaunching the same demographic, the same ad creative, and just trying again and seeing maybe you just get different results. Yeah, no, 100%. You you, you got to continuously A-B test as, as I guess what you're getting at with all of that. Um, and I guess even there in terms of your experience on the development side with some of these platforms, but also just in marketing, um, millennials versus Gen Z. Um, you know, I, I am saying this because I, I think technically I looked it up. I think it said technically I'm a part of Gen Z. I might just be the cutoff. I don't, I don't know if I really identify with it, but, um, you know, it, it does feel to me like the differences between Gen Z and millennials, uh, are pretty drastic, especially maybe with digital habits. So I guess broadly, and maybe influencer marketing even, uh, factors into this answer, but if a company wants to target millennials and then they go, all right, we also want to target Gen Z, just how different do those strategies have to be? The strategies can be very different in the sense of the content that is actually shown to them. However, they could also be the same because as again, it depends on the platform, the interest targeting could also be very much different. One thing that's shown is that a lower percentage of millennials like anime compared to Gen Zs. A lot of Gen Zs like anime, like an extremely high percentage of this. As an overall demographic, there are some interesting trends at play that have to be considered. But think taking into consideration of like habits that's already existing, how they use certain platforms, like how Gen Zs use Facebook versus how a millennial use Facebook might be completely different. I'm not going to name any specific actions, though an example would be how certain people on Facebook, and we all know certain people post their personal information on Facebook, right? And right. other users prefer being more secretive about the information, very more protective. They may prefer if they do post on Facebook, it's in private groups rather than in their pu public feed, their public news feed. That is, uh, you know, it's funny. I'm realizing I probably said that is interesting to everything you're saying, but everything you're saying is really interesting, um, especially to me where, I mean, influencer marketing is in all of this and Gen Z. It's something I'm just constantly thinking about. But um, it seems like what you're getting at is something I haven't really heard a lot of other people talk about where... Um, you know, maybe it's millennials that are more, hey, this is my social media platform. All of my social media activity as a whole, if it's a pie chart, it's overwhelmingly public facing. Whereas Gen Z might be a little bit more into the dark social communications and wanting to communicate in ways that, hey, if you just Google their name, it's not going to just come up. Um, is that something that you're seeing? I, I do see that quite a bit. So with... The older generation, they adapted and realized, okay, these certain platforms are a part of lives, and this is how it was traditionally been used. But Gen Zs, as since they grew up in the digital age, where these platforms were already there before they were born or just after they were born, they realized that, hey, these platforms do exist, but we take the same kind of caution you take in real life on the platform. And that's just because they the previous generation already went through all the hurdles for them. They saw all the edge cases of like, hey, this is what happened if you put all your information on these certain yeah. platforms. 
A hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to be, if you're anything like me, I, I don't know about you, but having to go back to things you wrote on Facebook when you're in middle school going like, oh boy, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this can't be attached to the name. Um, well then, God, I guess on that as a, as a final topic, Shane, um, kind of going full circle here. Um, you know, uh, we first connected via Clubhouse. I know it's a platform you're really active on. So I want to get your general thoughts on Clubhouse, but even beyond Clubhouse, I guess what it is indicative of in terms of, you know, the, the trend we're going down for uh, new platforms. Well, something that is kind of interesting is that new formats have to arise and it may be in forms we didn't expect. And that's simply because they offer a different experience. We can't stay with the same formats that we always have because, especially as a younger generation, since they grew up with these same formats, they're going to want to move towards something new, something that offers a new experience. And at least with voice like Clubhouse, it offers the advantages of being able to connect with people. However, not having to actually show the physical appearance of a person, you could just kind of speak with ease. They actually, something cool about Clubhouse that I normally compare it to is that they brought conferences online. So you don't actually have to go to a conference. You get all the value of a conference if you're an older generation. You bring all the value of a conference, you do it online. For a younger generation, it feels kind of like a school where like each door is a different topic and you just go into whatever room you like. So it's like a school, honestly, a school with actual topics you care about, not forced topics. And you just join whatever topic you feel like in the moment. I mean, it, it is an incredible platform. I've I've become more addicted to it than I feel like I've become of, of any recent social media platform. But I'm wondering, so this is the the devil's advocate argument that I heard from a millennial as like a clubhouse. I don't know where they go. I mean, what? Why? Why wouldn't this just be an Instagram live where you can, uh, you know, you go on Instagram, you can request to join who needs this new application? So uh, I guess with that in mind, and then people saying, oh, it might just be a fad. Things I'm not saying I believe, but I, I'm, I'm wondering solely as someone who I know you're very active on the platform, how do you see Clubhouse as different? So I'm not gonna necessarily advocate for specifically Clubhouse, but I will advocate for a new platform because mm. something that I frequently say is that behavior is dependent on the platform just because you add a feature to a platform doesn't mean that it's going to be used and for certain platforms maybe the older generations who are already very much used to those platforms will happily switch over and use those platforms whatever new features come up but as a new generation who's not as so their whole life isn't solely built on that platform they're willing to try out new places and with new places it gives a new opportunity to put new behaviors. If a platform is normally more about more serious topics, it gets hard to move away from that culture later on. So yes, it could go on any other platform. This feature could go on any other platform, technically by like actual code wise, but the actual content, the people on the platform is completely different. In the sense yeah. that, hey, you may only get certain content and get certain vulnerability on certain platforms versus other platforms, it could be more salesy. 
There's a reason why it's behavior on TikTok and the demographic on TikTok is different than the demographic on Facebook or right. on Instagram. New platforms give the opportunity for new behaviors and to pull new demographics who want those new behaviors and new things that are accepted with only within that community, with only within that platform. Wow. And and now you you really have me thinking here. Um and again, I apologize. I know I said that was the last question, but I have to ask you this because you've got me uh, so fascinated here because, you know, I, I remember when Facebook, I think it was like 2011, they did timelines and they're like, oh, isn't this great? Now, when your great grandkids go on Facebook, they can go and look back at all your activity. But of course, it seems like uh, what you're getting at is as culture is so rapidly evolving and as people are looking to express themselves differently on, on different platforms, part of social media in the long run, how it's going to be remembered is that there will always be new platforms that platforms will just kind of naturally have a shelf life before people feel, Hey, I need to move on and express myself differently on a new platform. Yes, I do agree though with good leadership at a platforms company, it could extend the shelf life way beyond what we expected. But yes, there will always be new platforms for people to express themselves differently. And that's just the case because if you go on certain platforms like YouTube, there's a lot of already big players established on there and it could kind of feel like the big players gets all the preference when YouTube is recommending content to its users. By going on TikTok and making your content, you could actually have a chance of building a deeper connection with your audience rather than have to fight for views. Because like as a content becomes more popular, more spam actually arises on the platform. And that makes it harder for new people because it's like the algorithm and the users have to differentiate, hey, is this just a spam content or is this actually a good user trying to connect with some audience? When you go on a new platform, everyone's at the same level there's a chance that someone can see you they actually will give your content a chance and you can build that deep connection with your audience yeah which is of course in turn how you then become an influencer is part of that strategy technically yes <laughs> yeah exactly i know that might be a bit of a stretch but um god well shane i this has been so fantastic getting your insights on everything and and for the listeners if if i haven't talked about uh you and what you've done enough is is there anything else you want to throw out there anywhere else where people can read your deeper thoughts on the industry i mean primarily you can find me on twitter it's the urban nerd you can also find me on youtube i mean well not youtube i did have an account but not anymore <laughs> Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn primarily at Shane Austry, and you can also find me on Clubhouse primarily at Shane Austry. <laughs> yeah, I, I highly recommend those latter. I haven't seen your YouTube nor your Twitter, but uh, your LinkedIn insights as well as your uh, uh, your Clubhouse insights have been fantastic. Uh, so again, Shane, thank you so much for coming on. It's totally great to be here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tube Circuit. Please subscribe for more deep dives and conversations on the direction of digital media.